Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. So we're busy with a series um, that we started recently on the book of Colossians. And um, if you can just uh, bring up that second slide, um, please, Tubes. Um, The interesting thing here is that what Paul is trying to do is sort of depicted in that, in that image. Because he's writing to a Christian church who are already born again. When you read it, you can, you can see they've already responded to the gospel. They've put their trust in, they put their faith in Jesus Christ. Um, they already saved. They, Paul refers to them, you know, when he greets them. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, uh, and Timothy, our brother. And then he says, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae. So you, you already says they, they brothers and sisters, they, 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 they saints. In other words, they're holy and they're faithful. So, so they're already on the inside. They're already part of the church. And yet, the whole letter that he writes to them is about the gospel. Which to, to many of us as Christians is a bit surprising because we tend to think that the gospel is the way in. But one of the big things that Paul says in Colossians, as he does in so many other places in the the New Testament and in his letters, he says that the gospel is not just the way in, the gospel is also the way on. Okay? Turn to your neighbor and say, the gospel is the way in and the way on. Nudge them. (laughs) So, So we very easily think of the gospel as how you need to become a Christian. So the gospel is for people who don't believe, and then once you believe, you graduate from the gospel to, 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 to you know, deeper things. But, um, you know, Paul, you know, is at pains to make it clear that you never graduate from the gospel by sharing the gospel with those who have already accepted the gospel. And, and what Paul's desire is and what Paul's aim is um, that he's trying to communicate here in Colossians, is to get us as Christians to live out the gospel in all of life, in every aspect of life. And you'll see he covers a lot of stuff. He covers deep theology. He covers, you know, sin and how to get free from it. He covers family life. You name it, how to um, relate to people outside the church, all of it. And in everything, the essence of what he's conveying is live out the gospel. Live out the gospel in your family life. Live out the gospel towards God in your worship. Live out the gospel towards one another in the church. Live out the gospel in your work life. Live out the gospel everywhere. Um, So let's just um, read Colossians 1 uh, from about verse 1 to 8. I'm going to be focusing on verse 3 to 5 this morning. But uh, it starts in verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in 
the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your or our behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So, Lord God, we just come and consecrate ourselves to you and we just want to identify with the church in Colossae, Lord God. Um, Lord, just like the church in Colossae, we haven't met Paul face to face, but we also know, like they did, that what he's writing to them is relevant to them. Lord, and it's also relevant to us. And, and like, like the church in Colossae, Lord God, we have also received the gospel. The gospel has also come to us, but even though the gospel has already come to us and we've already believed it, we still need the gospel and we need to be reminded of the gospel and of the effects of the gospel in our lives. And we pray, Holy Spirit, um, that you will work those same effects in us as you did in them. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, Paul starts off in verse 3, and, he, and he, he's not actually... So, what I want to share with, with us today is that the one thing that the gospel changes is your prayer life. The more you believe the gospel, the more it changes your prayer life. And it changes not only how you pray, but what you pray for. Okay? So, in, in verse 3... Paul starts off and he says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, of the truth, the gospel. And Paul is not praying for them here, but he's reporting, he's telling them what he usually prays for them. Okay? Now, Think about this for a moment. When Paul prays about something, it's because it's important to Paul. In fact, you can take it so far as to say that Paul's going to pray about the things that are most important to him. So can you see how the gospel and how Paul's believing the gospel causes him to see certain things as most important in the lives of the churches that he ministers to? And those things that are priority to Paul should be priority to us. So I just want you to notice, um, firstly, a few things that the gospel, how the gospel causes Paul to pray for the Colossians and how the gospel should cause us to pray for ourselves and for one another. Okay? So firstly, notice he starts off by thanking God for their faith, love, and hope. Now, Let's be brutally honest with ourselves and with one another. Oftentimes, we as Christians tend to pray mostly when things go wrong. Isn't that so? Mostly we pray when there's something that we're upset about, something that has gone wrong, someone we're concerned about or worried about, or something that we really want. You know, when, when, when there's a need that we have. Then we pray. Then we bring our needs before the Lord. Then we bring this person that we're concerned about before this Lord, this prodigal son, or this brother or sister, or even a mother or father who doesn't serve him yet. So, so often, we pray mostly when things go wrong. Now, Paul, here, yeah, clearly, he's thanking God 
not just for, he's not just praying when things go wrong, he also prays when things are right. He prays about the things that are right. And I think that's a good example to us. I think we too should not just pray. It's, it's not that it's wrong to pray for things that are wrong or things that you want to change or people that you want God to intervene in their lives. That's, it's, it's, it's not at all wrong to pray about those things. It's right to pray about those things. But I think it's wrong to only pray about those things. We should also pray about the things that are right. We should also pray when we see something going well in someone's life. When we see someone walking in faith, walking in love to the people around them, having a strong hope in their heart, we should also pray about that and thank God for that and pray that God will reinforce that. You see, we can very easily, if we don't, have, if we don't allow the gospel to change our prayer lives, we can have a, a very negative perspective on life, especially if we watch a lot of news and social media. It trains us in a way to see mostly the negative, to see mostly what goes wrong. But the gospel changes the way we see other people. The gospel changes what we listen for. He says, since we heard about your faith, love, and hope. What do you listen for? Do you listen only for things that are wrong, that need to be fixed? Or do you also listen for things that you can celebrate, things that are right, and then pray about those? Can you see how the gospel changes our prayer life? And I think that's a challenge to all of us. Paul prayed different from how we often pray, and we need to learn from Paul. And the reason why Paul prayed different was because Paul believed the gospel, and he looked at himself and those around him through the lens of the gospel. And he saw things that he could celebrate, positive things that he could pray about, effects of the gospel that he could pray about. Okay, so let's not just, the gospel teaches us to not just pray when things go wrong, but also to, to give thanks about things that are right. But then also, um, in Colossians 2 verse 1, Paul says, for I, know, uh, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for all I have not seen, who have not seen me face to face. So, the Colossian church is, is, and the letter to Colossians is unique in that Paul is writing here to a church he has not physically visited before. He's received reports from Epaphras about who planted the church and, and, and who led the church. He's re received reports from Epaphras and he's heard about them, but he's never actually met them face to face. And the gospel will do that as well. The gospel will cause you to pray for people and churches you have never visited. Because, and, and you can see why. Paul goes on in verse 6 to 8 and he says the gospel, wherever it goes, it's bearing fruit. It's increasing. It's changing the world. It's changing people's lives. And so when you hear about people, churches, places where the gospel has been planted and has started growing up and bearing fruit, you'll pray about that as well. Um, recently, a, a, a lady from... Uh, Open Doors Ministries visited us um, in our last first uh, Monday prayer, and we had a good time praying for the persecuted church in, in Southern Africa. Um, and at the moment, Africa has more persecuted Christians than anywhere else in the world, which is quite an accomplishment. If you think about the fact that in 
places like China and the Middle East, especially Muslim countries, there's a lot of persecution. Um, you know, in terms of numbers, you know, Nigeria is, is one of the places in the world that has the most persecu Christian persecution. Christians are the most persecuted people group in the world, by far. I mean, there's, there's no, cl you know, close second. And there are a lot of people groups and, and, and groupings that get persecuted, but there's not one grouping that gets persecuted nearly as much as Christians. And yet, you hear about all kinds of other people who get persecuted for their politics, for their sexuality, for their this, for their that, for the other, but you almost never hear in the news of Christians being persecuted, do you? Now, the gospel will cause us to have a heart for those who've received the gospel, whether they've responded positively um, or whether the you know, surrounding culture is, uh, is responding positively to them or negatively, um, the gospel will cause us to pray for people, even people we don't know and we've never met face to face. And then, thirdly, notice what Paul prays for. Well, let me rather put it differently. Notice what Paul doesn't pray for. Notice, and if you go on, you know, reading his prayer in, in verse 9 to, 15, uh, to 14, Paul doesn't pray for the external circumstances. In fact, if you go through all of Paul's letters, I don't think, I, I, I can't think of one instance where he prays for the external circumstances to change. All of the stuff that he prays for are spiritual things, internal things, not external circumstances. Even churches that are being seriously persecuted, he never prays that the persecution may stop. <laughs> He always prays that they might be brave and bold and faithful in the persecution. Now, contrast that with what we usually pray for. What do we usually pray for? For physical things, for things in our circumstances to change. For, for, for many of us, that's the, that makes up the bulk of what we pray for. That made up almost nothing of what Paul prayed for. Now, now, think about this. In other words, the gospel caused, and Paul's belief in the gospel caused him, and his understanding of the gospel caused him to, the, to pray for the things that mattered most. And what are the things that matter most? It's not like your circumstances are unimportant. I mean, Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. God is concerned with our physical provision and all of that kind of stuff. I'm not saying it's unimportant, but if we've Look at Paul's prayer. Clearly, Paul thought it wasn't most important. He thought the things that were most important were people's faith, their love, their hope, their response to the gospel, their, the wisdom with, that they had to live out the gospel. Those were the things that Paul considered most important, and those were the things that he prayed for most. In fact, he says he prayed for them all the time. Has the gospel changed your prayer life so that you pray for the people that are important to you, that you pray for the things that are most important to God, that, that are gospel priorities? I think that's a challenge, definitely to my prayer life. Uh, we need to pray more for the fruit of the gospel in people's lives, both thanking God for it and asking God for it, 
rather than just to change people's circumstances. And then he goes on, um, you know, to, to, to talk about these things that are most important. And, and three of the things that he mentions is faith, love, and hope. You know, we, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Um, firstly, this is a very famous triad of Christian virtues, probably the most famous. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, it says, "Now, So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, and the greatest of these is love. In 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 2 and 3, it says, We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And in um, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8, it says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So, I mean, that's just sort of a sampling of other places where Paul uses the same triad of Christian virtues. I just want you to see how Paul often uses these three virtues, faith, hope, and love, to summarize the Christian life. Okay? So just bring up that, that, um, the, the previous slide with um, faith, hope, and love on it. I just want you to think a bit. What, what do you think Paul meant with faith, hope, and love? And why do you think he used it to summarize the Christian faith? Okay? Just turn to each other two by two and quickly share with the person next to you. Just in a, in a minute or two, why do you think Paul used these three virtues? What do you, what do you think he meant with them? And wh why do you think he used them to summarize the Christian faith? So Paul um, starts off talking about faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love for all the saints. And he says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So it, it seems like he's saying that the hope laid up for you in heaven, and, and, and here he talks about, and he goes on to mention that this hope that you heard about in the gospel. Later on he calls it the hope of the gospel in so many words in, in, in Colossians. Um, he says, because of this hope laid up for you in heaven, you have faith and love. Okay, So it seems like Paul is saying that your hope causes your faith and your love. Isn't that so? So let's just, let's just look at, at those three virtues um, and how they relate to one another. You know, um, what is hope? We're at a bit of a disadvantage, um, you know, those of us who, who speak English, because in English the, the word hope contains the idea of in uncertainty. You say, like, I hope it won't rain. Okay, but you don't know, but you sort of hope so. Okay, or I hope he'll call me. Or I, or, or I hope I get the promotion. Okay, but, but hope in English always contains an element of uncertainty, but, but not in, in Greek. In the Bible, the, the, the Greek New Testament, hope always actually 
conveys the opposite, the idea of certainty. It's something you long for, something you look forward to, but something that you have confidence will come to pass. Okay, so, so hope is, 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 is not, so, so, you know, I mentioned this because it's very easy for us to think like, you know, when we hear the word hope, to think wishful thinking. You know, it's very easy for us, but that's not what the Bible means with hope. The, the Bible means, when, when, the, when um, Hebrews talks about hope and when Paul talks about hope, um, it, it's speaking of hoping in the promises of God which are certain and secure. In other words, it's having, having an expectation, but, but with that expectation, the certainty that it is true. The, the conviction, the confidence that it is true. Um, in Hebrews 11 verse 1, uh, a famous scripture about um, the relationship between faith and hope. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. Now, you'll notice in many different English translations, they, they translate that word assurance in all kinds of different ways. It's the assurance of things hoped for. It's the, um, it's the substance of things hoped for. Um, the word hypostasis is, is, a, is a bit of a difficult word to translate clearly, you know, otherwise the English translations wouldn't have such a wide range of, of, of words that they use to translate it. But what I think the writer to the Hebrews means by it, let's look at Hebrews 1 verse 3, because the same word is used there. He says, he, talking about Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his hypostasis, nature. And he upholds the universe with the word, word of his power. So, so the word hypostasis means essence, substance, nature, something like that. So, so what, what he's saying when he says now faith is the substance or the nature of things hoped for, or the, the, what he's saying is faith is taking the things that we hope for and tasting them in the present. Taking the things that still lie in the future that we expect and hope for and that we are confident of and tasting them, tasting their very nature, their very essence in the presence, in the, pre in the present. Um, the conviction of things not seen, things that we don't see yet but we're convinced of. And we want to live now as though those things are already true because they are already true. They're just waiting to be released to us. So that's what he means. You know, faith leads, faith is, is how you taste in the present the things that you hope for in the future. Okay? Does that make sense? And um, there's a good example in, in, in Hebrews, just a few, just a chapter or so later in, in Hebrews 11. It says, By faith, Moses when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to, to the reward. That last phrase, he was looking to the reward, that is basically hope. So, here's the thing. Many people, when they think about faith, 
they think about acknowledging the truth. People will say, because you know, he talks about their, your faith in Christ Jesus. People will say, yeah, I have faith in Christ Jesus. But then when you look at their life, they don't go to church on a Sunday. They don't live for God at work or at home. Or, or at least if they do, you can't see it. You know, they, they, they don't necessarily pray much. They don't um, necessarily tithe. They don't necessarily try and make decisions to please God. In other words, they say they believe in Jesus Christ, but it doesn't change how they live. But that's not the kind of faith that the Bible is talking about. The kind of faith that the Bible speaks of and that Paul speaks of in Colossians is the kind of faith that changes your behavior. You see, your beliefs, your faith, your beliefs determine your behavior. So if you want to know what you really believe, look at your behavior. Amen or Aina? <laughs> right? Whatever you truly believe inevitably expresses itself in your behavior. So if you say you believe in Christ Jesus, but you don't follow Christ Jesus and live for Christ Jesus and like Christ Jesus, then you, it's not the kind of faith the Bible is talking about. So it's not what... Um, John Wesley would call mental assent. Most people, when they talk about faith, they're talking about mental assent, agreeing intellectually with the truth. Yes, I agree that once upon a time, there was a guy called Jesus Christ who was born in Nazareth and who died on a cross. I, I agree with that truth. It's, it's a historic reality. I agree with it. No, 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 no. F when Paul talks about faith in Christ Jesus, he talks about faith in him that changes your life. That changes the way you live. That causes you to follow him. Not just to acknowledge that he's a historic reality. Or even that he rise, rose from the dead. But that causes you to live differently because of it. That's the kind of faith in Christ Jesus that he's talking about. Does your faith change your behavior? Does your, your belief in Jesus change your behavior to live like, to, to, and cause you to live like Jesus? We can see here that Moses, it says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. It caused him to change whom he associated himself with. No, I'm not primarily part of the Egyptian nation. I'm primarily part of the Israelite nation. Um, even if that costs me something, even if I have to sacrifice all the treasures of being part of the royal Egyptian family, and become poor with the people of God. I'm going to associate with them. Because by faith I'm part of them. Even if I have to suffer mistreatment. Reproach. I'm going to, I'm going to associate with the people of God. Even if I have to give up the... Look, let's, let's be honest. No one would sin unless it was nice. Right? <laughs> unless there was pleasure in sin. But acknowledging that the pleasures of sin are fleeting. They're passing. They don't last, but the pleasures of God are eternal, and they last forever. Okay, so so giving up the treasures of Egypt is so, so um, by faith it, it changes your behavior. It changes who you associate yourself with. It changes how you live, what you live for. No longer the pleasures of sin. No longer the treasures of Egypt. But now living for God, and for His glory, because. 
he was looking to the reward because he had a hope of a reward. And, and hope is, the reality of hope is that God will reward us. Let me put it to you this way. There's not one sin that you commit now that you will not regret one day in eternity. And there's not one step of obedience that you take now that you will regret in eternity. God will reward you. Not because you deserve it, just because he's a father and he loves rewarding. Um, so hope, our hope in, in the reward of the gospel, the promised rewards of the gospel, causes us to put our faith in Christ Jesus. Faith that doesn't just acknowledge that he's a historic reality, but that changes our behavior, changes what we live for and how we live. And that causes us to walk in love, which is part of that change of behavior. Galatians 5 verse 6 says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Faith expresses itself through love. Faith manifests itself. Faith lives itself out through love. Um, it's part of behavior change is, is that love. And, and the word here for love, I mean, we only have in English one word for love, don't we? Which is love. Um, <laughs> but in Greek, there are about four words. You know? You, you have like philos, which is friendship love. You have eros, which is romantic or sexual love. Then you have agape, which is unconditional love. And this is the one used here. When it says love for all the saints, it's agape. It's an unconditional love that always wants what's best for the object of its love and that is willing to sacrifice, even when the object of, of, of the love is, is not perfect or not worthy of the love. It's the kind of love with which God loves us. In other words, the gospel causes us to receive such a love from God, and that causes us to want to give such a love to one another. That's what the Bible says. That's what Paul is saying here. Faith working through love. Let's just go back to those verses. Um, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. The direction of faith is towards Christ Jesus and of your, of your love for all the saints. So he, he, he said in his greeting that the Colossians are saints. He referred to them as the saints in Colossae. But now he says that your hope, the hope laid up for you in heaven that you receive, the hope of the gospel that you receive through the gospel causes you to have faith in Christ Jesus and it causes you to love not only the saints in Colossae, but to love all the saints. You know, one of the fruit that you know that you've truly received the gospel is that you start loving people and associating with people that you normally wouldn't. That's not a, a natural thing. In, in the world, pretty much people who look the same, who, are, who earn the same, who sound the same, who believe the same, hang out together. That, that is the reality in, in, in most of the world. Except in the church. In the church, you find lots of people who don't look the same, who don't sound the same, who come from very different cultures, and those cultures often have very different values. 
people who are from different classes, upper class, lower class, and, and, and the whole spectrum in between, from different socioeconomic backgrounds. But there's something more powerful that binds them together than the external cultural realities that would separate them. And that's their common faith in Christ Jesus. The fact that they've received an agape love from him, they've been loved with an everlasting love by him, and now they love one another with that same kind of love. The same hope they have that is laid up for them in heaven, the things that they receive from the gospel, bind them together more strongly. The, the sad reality is, I mean, if, you, if we look around us today, we see a wide spectrum of people. The sad reality today is that even in the church, in most churches in South Africa, you won't see this variety. You won't see this fruit of the gospel. In most churches meeting this morning, there are either mostly or exclusively black people or mostly or exclusively white people. That's the reality. There aren't, not all churches even, live out this reality of the gospel. And it just shows you how we still need the gospel as the church to cause us to love all the saints. One of the surest ways that you know that the gospel is bearing fruit in your life is if you love, if you are able to love and if you want to love, if you are determined to love people who irritate you. And guess what? You'll find those people in church. You'll find not many of them, not many, but some. (laughs) They might be in your small group. (laughs) God might intentionally place them there. To help you practice the kind of agape love that he loves you with. And God has called us to love one another like that. And he enables us to love one another like that. And and that's what I want to close with. Um, Just notice what Paul says here at the beginning. The gospel causes Paul not just to pray differently not just to pray for different things, what matters most, but to give thanks for the things that he prays for. Okay. Now, why do you give thanks to someone? You give thanks to someone who has given you something. Right? So he starts off and he says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith, love, and hope. What does that imply? Where does that faith, love, and hope come from? Why does Paul thank God for them? Because these most important fruits of the gospel are fruits that God works in us and that we therefore need to thank him for. Now, Paul, obviously, and and we see it in other scriptures, Paul prays for these things. He prays that people might, you know, continue in faith, hope, and love people because of the gospel might manifest and 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 flourish in faith hope and love and because he heard that the colossians were he was thanking god for it so so here's the thing you know if you know as i present these three virtues faith hope and love to you you feel oh you know i'm not so consistent as i'd like to be in these i'm i'm not as good these, these fruit are not growing as much as they should, and I'd like to have them grow in my, life, in my life, then I've got good news for you. These are things you can pray for, 
and then God will cultivate as the great gardener. He'll cultivate these things in your life. He'll fertilize you. He'll cause the life and the nourishment of Christ to flow through you. He'll even prune you a little bit here and there. Cut away a few things that are blocking the growth of this faith, love, and hope in your life. But he will cause these things to grow in your life so that you can then say, thank you, God. Thank you, Father, for the faith, hope, and love that are busy increasing in my life, that are busy growing in my life. Um, So you give thanks to someone who has given something to you, which implies that God is the one who gives faith, love, and hope to the Colossians and, by implication, to us. Um. He goes on in verse 6 to say that since you've known, you know, you heard about these things in, in the gospel and, and it's bearing, bearing fruit in your life, since you um, have understood the grace of God in all its truth, truly understood the grace of God. And the grace of God contained in the gospel is not just the unmerited favor that causes God to say, I accept you even though you ought to be unacceptable to me. It's also the divine empowerment that causes us to grow and to bear the fruit of faith, love, and hope. God working in us to be like Him. Um, Does this mean that we don't have to expend any effort to believe, to love, to hope? No. Here's a secret about how God works. God works in our lives, not apart from our effort, but through our effort. You see, grace, one of of my favorite descriptions of grace is by a guy called Dallas Willard. He says, grace is opposed to effort, not to earning. Sorry, other way around. Grace, (laughs) sorry, scrap that one. Here's the right one. Grace is opposed to earning, not to effort. Grace is opposed to earning, not to effort. In fact, grace produces effort. Grace says you don't have to deserve right relationship with God. You don't have to deserve God's favor. Someone has already deserved it for you. But grace also works in you. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Paul often talks about the grace of God working powerfully in me. And through me. Okay? So, God's grace works in you in such a way that you want to believe more. You want to love more. You want to hope more. And you are able to believe, love, and hope more. It enables you to do that. And God's grace is available to you. And it's working in you right now. And you know why God's grace is available to you you in that way? Paul hints at it when he says... In verse 2, he says, at the end, he says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father. And then in the very next verse, he says, We always thank God, not our Father, but the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. He's trying to highlight Jesus. He's saying, The reason why God works faith, love, and hope in us by his grace is because he's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who sent Jesus to become one of us, to be incarnated, to be born in Bethlehem, 
to lie in a manger, to grow up amongst sinful people like us, to live the perfect life that He, the Father, required from us, but that we couldn't live. And then to die the innocent death that we deserve to die, but to die it in our place. And then to rise from the dead and to ascend to the throne so that he is now the Lord, Jesus Christ. So that his father can now be our father. So the, that the father who, so that he who deserves to be treated as a faithful son, but was not, can say, Father, now treat them who don't deserve to be treated as faithful sons and daughters as though they were faithful because I was faithful on their behalf. When you realize that, the truth of the gospel, you too, like Paul, we, like Paul, will also always give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because he has been so, so good to us. And he continues to be so, so good to us. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.